0: that's where where we differ from you know trying to chip your fishermen back to save money we sort of say this is kind of how much we pay for this quality you know and that's kind of the quality we expect so rather than paying less you just increase the quality of the fish and therefore you, it's easier to sell etc.
1: This is Fish Tales, a seafood podcast I'm John Sussman. The entire world of food seems to have a labour shortage The job of finding the next generation of professionals in hospitality is constantly being proposed as one of the great challenges faced by the industry the question of where to find cooks waiters and managers is a constant across the world this despite the relative security of the work the glamour of the environment and the urban nature of the work imagine then the challenge for the seafood industry where the fundamental job revolves around being wet cold smelly and slimy dealing with the inconsistency of supply fluky demand for the most volatile protein of them all and the constant whim of a third-party gatekeeper to its use, the chef. Young talent is vital to the future of the seafood industry but it's a hard sell and fewer people are being attracted than ever before. For those young people who do find themselves in the industry, it's as exciting as can be found in any area of hospitality. For Phil Clark, A passion for the food business baited him into the seafood industry and the thrill of the category hooked him to stay. Phil is part of the exciting next generation of operators in seafood. Along with his partner, John Corden, they operate Finn Seafood, a business that is turning the tables on old supply chain models and providing catchers and cooks a clear, transparent line of communication, reframing the role of the fishmonger as a fisher advocate and customer resource.
0: G'day, I'm Phil from Finn Seafood over in Perth. Um, we're a new seafood business, been around for about five years. Uh, started with one of my best mates, John Corden, back in uh, 2015. We started a retail store in South Perth. Uh, that taught us that we, were, we could do business together. We actually lost all the money that we invested into that store and, and some and but we thought if we can lose that much money together and still be mates, that's the person perfect person to be in business with. So we dug the hole a little bit deeper and started a factory down in Hamilton Hill, where we had the aim to process prawns. In reality, process prawns and, and sell a bit to restaurants, sell a few oysters uh, to restaurants and whatnot. And we sort of grew a pretty successful uh, seafood business from there. The reason I started was Destiny. So. My first job ever was packing bait on Pakenham Street for WA Bait Supply. Lou Rummer. My best mate was his son, Lee Rummer. And we used to pack mainly muleys, sometimes coral prawns. If we were really unlucky, this thing called bony herring, which was one of the most disgusting jobs you could do. I've got – I'd have to put a sheet over my face just to try and do it. And then the other one before they got banned was cow hocks for for cray bait. We used to have to break up the big cow legs and – Put them into smaller bags, so um, we'd do that for you know kids' rates, a couple bucks an hour sort of thing, and we'd sometimes we'd save enough money just to go to the the movies and stink out the whole movie theater smelling like sardines. so that was my start. then I went to school, et cetera, uni finished at the global finance financial crisis, so it wasn't like it used to be go to school, go to uni, get a job for the boys in the city um, there was no real jobs out there anymore and gave me the opportunity to really think about what I wanted to do. And then my dad gave me some really sound advice. He says, Phil, if you find something you love, you never have to work a day in your life. And he said, what do you love? And I said, I love food. I want to own restaurants and be a restaurateur or something. And he said, right, you know that most people go broke owning restaurants. And I said, right. he said, how are you going to learn about it? And I said, well, I'll go work and sell seafood, sell stuff to restaurants. I started working for Simon Johnson being a rep for them, learned how to sell fancy food and, and a lot of the networks in the, at least the West Australian side of things for some of the restaurants. And then one day, Lou Rummer called me up and he was about to sell his share in a fish shop called Big Fish Direct that he owned with a guy, Brett Hogan. And he said, Phil, give this guy Brett a call. He'll probably give you a job. So I called him. He said, let's go for a beer. We went for a beer at the Tradewinds sort of told him what I was about, what I wanted to do. The job that he had in mind was a little bit different, set something else up for me, and uh, the rest is history. Joined Focus Fisheries and had an awesome mentor in Brett Hogan who, if any of you out there that know me knows pretty much anything and everything about seafood. So um, I'm a sponge, I'm dyslexic, and I don't really learn too well from reading or this and that and the other, but I really, I learn really well from, from listening to people and, and experiences, so... Brett gave me fantastic experiences to, to really be able to flesh out myself and be sort of, I guess, really knowledgeable in seafood
1: myself. Like many great businesses, Finns Seafood is the result of serendipity, luck, planning and a load of chutzpah. Not born of a premeditated plan, but more an evolution of ideas and enthusiasm, the Finns model is based on a clear and honest communication across the supply chain. And the magic that is social media, which allows you to create relationships with people who you might not otherwise know.
0: Finn Seafood has really grown since when we started. Firstly, we started, we actually bought uh, an oyster business and we started selling oysters directly to restaurants. Um, and then started buying a bit of fish off fishermen here, there, and everywhere. And we quite frankly didn't really know what we were doing. Um, we came from, John came from Austral Fisheries one of the biggest fishing companies in Australia, really competent in the frozen space. And I worked for a company called Maritarum. We had West seafoods, a lot of prawn boats, again, frozen products. And uh, then we started to get into the fresh fish world and not knowing what we were doing, I believe is actually what created us and helped us be successful. So um, what we did was, since we didn't know the price of fish, we asked the fishermen how much they wanted to get paid for the fish. And, you know, as long as we can make money on top of what we were paying, then that's good business. And that's sort of how we developed such great um, relationships with fishermen. And one of the things that we did leaving these larger companies that, you know, Austral Fisheries is a fantastic company, but, you know, John had been there for a while and sort of a bit of a glass ceiling, wanted to stretch his wings and do something for himself. And I was at Mara Terum, which was publicly listed, And uh, in that space, you tend to care more about profits than people. And that just wasn't the the place for me to be. So when we started Finn Seafood, one of the core things that we really cared about was creating this, what we call the Finn's family. So I always say we're not in the seafood business. We're in the people business. The better people we have around us, the more successful our business is going to be. So basically, along the journey, first year, we sort of scrapped around, did a bit of wholesale prawns, sold some Oki, sort of disturbed the octopus market, I guess, a little bit. Um, and then yeah, started doing a little bit of wet fish. Mainly wholesale, um, with a little bit of food service and a small amount of retail. And you know, we were sending, we started sending fish over to the east coast, you know, even putting gill tags in them and really connecting the story between the fishermen and the product and building you know, notoriety for the fishermen that fished for us. So it wasn't just West Australian Jewfish, it was Jewfish off the Boethic or or something to that effect. Um, That went really well, sort of grew some really solid wholesale customers on the East Coast um, that supported us. I mean, the guys from Clams were a huge part of our story um, starting out. Uh, Who else was it over there? We had, I mean, the fish butchery. Big guys over there that, that helped us out really grow and start getting guys from Get Fish, Pullos Brothers, etc. Um, all our old friends from from back when we were selling frozen things. Then COVID obviously hit. Had to restructure our business um, again. Wholesale was eighty percent. Retail food service was about twenty percent. Now it's exactly opposite. Our food service was probably more like 60% wholesale, about 40%. So flights, et cetera, going over east was really hard. So yeah, we just reframed our business to be a, more of a food service business. And then, yeah, now we're sort of onto the next stage, starting to buy boats and licenses.
1: The historical supply model in the seafood industry is one where there are multiple layers with most players engaged in a game of pass the parcel, seeking to dispose of it before the parcel literally goes off. The typical buy low, sell high model has predicated on the industry, with many along the supply chain believing their Rolodex of contacts is their exclusive currency in the business. But things have changed. With any buyer only two mouse clicks away from the source of supply, the old model is both naive and increasingly irrelevant. The role of the modern wholesaler is to work closely with fishermen, especially in the wild catch sector, to maximize their return day after day. Having an innate understanding of the worth of the catch based on an appreciation of quality and market expectation is a unique skill. But providing encouragement, engagement and transparency remains an elusive art for many in the seafood distribution business.
0: The early days, so the first six months I was still working for, for Maritarum, so my all I did in terms of Finn seafood duties was coming in and packing down the stillages from the nights before, so either octopus or prawns that we'd packed, or that we'd yeah, peeled and packed. And then, as we went on, we started to I started to do a little bit more. And one of the things that Finns is sort of I guess really renowned for is our, our Instagram account. We um, as I said, I'm pretty dyslexic, so I don't like typing and putting a picture up because it's just embarrassing when you can't spell most of the things. Um, so what I do is I've, I do the stories and I talk a lot in my stories and sort of got a bit of a cult following on that and I guess it all most of our our business either our sales and our supply all came through Instagram at that time so yeah one day Benny Pethick hits me up on Instagram said hey do you buy fish and I said yep Phil 0410140338 give me a call and uh and so he did and he said oh, what do you pay? I said, I don't know. How much do you want to get paid? And he said, oh, oh, could you do like 19 bucks for Dewey's and this and that and the other? And I said, yeah, okay. He said, what, all year round? And I said, well, is that what you want? And he said, yeah, same place the whole year. I said, cool, let's do it. Um, And one of the bits of advice that I got from someone else that was in the seafood industry at the time was the first dollar that you make is the one you save. And the way that I translate that is the first dollar that you make is the one you screw off your fishermen. That's not, we weren't in the position where we were a big enough company to have that sort of um, way of doing business because one, these people didn't even know if we could pay them how much they'd caught. You know, you're talking about $20,000 and we're the young guys on the block. And, you know, a lot of people out there weren't, Saying nice things and spreading rumours about the fact that we couldn't pay bills, etc. So, um, yeah, they sort of trusted us, and slowly from there, we built a, a really solid bunch of relationships with a lot of different fishermen. Part of that is again how naive we were. Um, we, the way that I we dealt with the fish was, we wanted all the fish that we bought that day sold that same day and out of the the business. So, we didn't really fully appreciate how long. Um, Fresh fish could be held. But also on the backside, we had guys that, that wanted to be the best possible fishermen they could be. And one of the problems that you have when you're buying fish is you've got to chill it down with ice. Now, there's different kinds of ice all throughout up and down the state. And quite often, you're going to get sort of a block ice or a cube ice sort of thing and what happens when you pack those fish, them on the fish, the fish on top, it tends to sort of dent the fish a little bit and we just didn't really like that. So we worked out ways with the fishermen of how to stop doing that by, you know, adding a little bit of water and salt to create a brine where the fish are sort of floating uh, rather than being compressed. Um, There's different fishermen that change the ice to a flake ice, um, all sorts of different bits and pieces, but it was just, I guess, on both sides wanting to have the best fish, so you know, and, and we were really lucky to have Ben, who really did care so much, and he sort of has set, I guess, what we'd call the best practice for for fish and fish handling on the boat. Um, and we sort of let other people know what Ben's doing. Not a lot of fishermen want to put the the effort in to do a double double ikijimi, uh, gill snip, bleed out all the fish, etc. But you know, a lot of the fishermen will. Take on some or a few of the bits and pieces that the Ben's been doing, so yeah, it was really just working closely with the people.
1: In the relatively short time finns have been operating, they've earned themselves an enviable reputation as one of the foremost suppliers of fresh Western Australian seafood. Working closely with a group of enthusiastic, committed and both traditional and next-generation fishers, they are providing an exciting new model to both catchers and buyers. Earning the trust of seasoned catchers is no easy task, especially in an industry littered with inconsistency of truth and bad payments.
0: Yeah, so it tends to be the, the younger guys. Um, we've got some more old school guys that, that have fantastic quality fish um, but still to still do it their way. Um, but you've got younger guys like you've got Anthony H- Hazelwood from Revolution Fisheries, uh, new young guy that's, that's come on. He looks after his fish really well. Um, got a young guy down south. Thomas that, that does a really good job and, you know, you just tell them little bits and pieces and they'll continuously try and improve. And I guess that's where, where we differ from, you know, trying to chip your fishermen back to save money. We sort of say, this is kind of how much we pay for this quality, you know, and that's kind of the quality we expect. So rather than paying less, you just increase the quality of the fish and therefore you, it's easier to sell, etc. You know, we're pretty much 99% Australian product and more, moreover, it's it's West Australian. So about 80-odd 80, 80 percent of our products would be West Australian. But our favourite things are, are prawns. Um, that, that's what I did. I love selling prawns. It's pretty uh, pretty good fun buying boatloads of prawns and selling them all off the back of the boat. So prawns from Spencer Gulf. We've got the Roslyn Ann that fishes for us over there, Nathan Hood, great guy. Um, and then the McGowan's over here who have got a prawn boat, that the Ocean Achiever, that does Shark Bay. And then the Orpheus, which is a scallop boat that does Shark Bay, the Abrolhos Islands, and Esperance Fisheries. And they're probably one of the most important people in the story of Finn seafood. Um, I've been selling the boys prawns since I was 23 years old. And when we started, it was the factory that they used to break down all their prawns actually burnt down up in Geraldton. So for the first year, we were taking all the prawn loads into our factory breaking them down and helping um, sell them across Australia. And, you know, those guys, you know, had some considerable credit out to to us and there was a lot of trust um, there. And, you know, without the McGowan's, there wouldn't be a Finn Seafood.
1: Moving a seafood from commodity to icon is no easy task. There are many challenges in getting the supply chain both activated and motivated, Taking logical steps and being transparent in the process requires a commitment and confidence often missing in an industry renowned for being dynamically transactional. Passing fresh eyes over a traditional fishery can lead to a new approach on how to present a seafood to market. Anchoring a product in a brand is much more than merely applying a smart logo, but a full chain approach of how the seafood is handled from point of harvest to how it is presented to the market. Building confidence in a branded seafood requires that both the buyers and end users know what they should be looking for and how it is best used and why it is different. The Abrolhos Island Scallop is an example of an end-to-end approach to elevating a truly great seafood to an icon status.
0: They had a fantastic um, product, these Abrolhos Island Scallops, that, you know, historically the box that we sold scallops in was said Shark Bay, Abrolhos and Estrance, and they effectively just sold as West Australian scallops. Now, you know, having a bit of experience starting with the scallops, we saw them. I saw how clean these Abrolis ones were. They were, they were really fantastic. and thought, far out. We've got to create something different here. And we've got a great product. And we actually probably had about $20 on the market price because the, the price of scallops at the time that we started the brand was actually pretty low. And, uh, John, you know the story as well as I do. We, I sort of gave you a call and you, you're one of the reasons that we, you know, for our success as well. Um, you helped us with that branding um, piece. We got it out on the east coast. And what we did was different to the normal. So what happens with scallops, they're caught at sea, they're frozen at sea, then they're in a bulk pack, then graded down generally into a two-kilo pack, and then refrozen again. And, you know, then even broken down from there again and refrozen again, that can happen. So what we do is we catch it at sea, blast freeze, freeze it really quickly. When we're going through that process of, of breaking down the product, we get the best quality product from that production and then put it into 500-gram takeaway containers, beautiful roller and scallop brand on it, and um, that's a once-frozen product. So that's as fresh as you can get it effectively and bivalves they're they're made of the makeup of the environment they're in and the Abrolhos is truly a globally unique location and it and it creates a not too sweet but quite nice and firm very clean scallop and it's for sashimi is probably top world.
1: For many the seafood industry has provided a pathway from rags to riches. For others it is a constant cycle of boom or bust. Historically, the seafood industry has been owned and operated by small to medium family enterprises, standing back and watching, whilst other areas of agribusiness attracted the big end-of-town investment. One of the big changes occurring in seafood right now is the recognition coming from the corporate and capital markets of how unique the industry is, perhaps a reflection of the awakening of awareness of just how special seafood is and what role it will be playing in the lifestyles of the next generation of diners.
0: I mean, the seafood industry has changed uh, a lot since I started, and I mean, you know, one easy one is the price of prawns. I mean, when I started, the price of an under 15 king prawn was $15.50, and that was the same as it was in 1987. So the prices haven't really changed at all. Um, but I mean, now there's considerably higher and there's a lot more demand for, for local products. Uh, and, yeah, so prices of products have obviously increased dramatically since when I started. But the other thing is, I guess, the transition of the ownership of assets is, is probably the biggest change in the Australian industry that I can see. Obviously, you know, the fishermen that started these fisheries, a lot of them are, you know, 20, 30, even 40 years ago when they when they got their starts in a lot of these fisheries, be it wet line, scalloping, whatever. Um, there's not a whole bunch of new entrants into uh, the fishing industry, so it's now getting to the point where people are transitioning the ownership of their assets. So there's a big change to, I guess, corporatization of, of a lot of the assets, um, sort of, I guess, less people owning more of the quota. Uh, so that's a really big change uh, in the, I guess, in the ownership of the asset. That's probably the biggest change that I've seen in CFA. Then the other one is probably, I guess, transparency, when when I started, um, I guess you know you, everyone's heard the old stories of fish and chip shops using skaters, scallops, etc. I mean, in this modern age, I guess that that's sort of moving away in a big way, and people are really transparent about where things are caught, how they're caught, um, what methods they're used to be caught, etc. So there's a lot more information flowing through to the consumer about the product that they're using.
1: Like many industries which are reliant on specialised and often physical skills, access to labour has become a significant barrier to growth and development in the seafood industry. Unlike many other areas of the food business, however, seafood doesn't offer a clear pathway to young entrants. Certainly in the post-catch sector, there is minimal options for a structured career through formal training. Despite these issues, working in seafood can offer one of the most exciting and dynamic careers to a young person seeking to be part of an industry which is fast becoming the it protein on the planet. The
0: The biggest issue for me that the industry is facing is skilled labour. So it's it's really sad, but you know, being a fish filleter or a fish monger or, or whatever is not recognised as a trade, but you can be a butcher. So you can cut up... There's, there's, you know, a cow, a sheep, a pig, a goat maybe. There's like four different body structures that you've really got to learn how to cut, um, and you can get a trade to get that, but you can't get any recognition as a trade for fish filling. So what that means is when the kids are going to the store to look at, going mean to at school to look at what jobs they might do, being a fish filler isn't even an option that they can see. And for me, when I, even me getting into the industry, I didn't even have a clue too much about it. I was just lucky that I I fell into it. Um, So having that, I guess, the skill on that front and the production side, it's really big. But then the flip side is the knowledge inside the heads of a lot of these fishermen. So when they die, if they haven't passed on this information or when they stop fishing, they haven't passed this information, that information is lost forever. And, you know, fishermen naturally don't share that information because they, that information is what makes them successful. So, yeah, we've just got a really a, a decreasing pool of talented people to catch the product of fish. And, you know, there's, there's a saying they say the fish seafood industry would be dead without crazy seas and, and, and drug addicts. Do you know what I mean? Because they're the ones that can still drive the boats, etc., or whatever, that are still willing to go out there, that haven't got the jobs on the mines, etc um because it's not an easy life it's you know certain fishing styles you're away from your family for eight months of the year uh it's it's really tough so that's that's one of the problems that is then the opportunity so for people like me and this is one of the reasons why i stuck with the seafood industry was you know even if fins fails i'm a valuable asset to any seafood business and, and if Finns did fail tomorrow i'd You could call up probably anyone around Australia and get a job because not many people have taken the time to learn about the industry and have the knowledge and have the network. So that's one of the benefits is that there's a small number of people and, for example, in Western Australia, we've got myself, John, my business partner, Asher, all work at Finns. So then you've got a guy, Matt Michalisi, Drew Martin, and then you'd say Sam Colvin, but they're the only people that have really going to take the industry too much further, they're going to take it further forward in terms of being a part of the industry. It's just a very small group of people that have a lot of the the knowledge, and so if you you want to get into a, a job, you can sort of be a relevant person. As I said, you know, you get to be a big fish in a small pond.
1: Interestingly, whilst there are advocates for regenerative farming, including biodynamic and organic operators, they appear to be the exception rather than the rule in the terrestrial food production cycle. It's amazing then to see such a provincial and relatively uncoordinated industry like seafood so broadly adopting formal sustainable practices and certification models.
0: Well, I mean, one of the really positive things is sort of since when I started and I guess sort of before then around the early 2000s, the whole world sort of started to wake up to sustainability in a big way. You get the you know, creation of the MSC um, certification, which you know, West Australia really champions that with the Western Rock Lobster being the first industry um, MSC certified. And I think we have 15 of our fisheries MSC certified, which is about, by volume, I think 64% of our, our fish is MSC certified is one of the world leaders in, in MSC certification. So, but that's happening globally. And I think one of the positive things is the recognition and science that's going in to find out what we need to do in the future to, you know, maintain a sustainable catch. And, and that means sort of going out year after year, catching about the same amount of product and getting about the same amount of money. So that's, that's the core of what most fishermen want. They don't want boom and bust. They don't want to take all the fish one year and then not have it for three years. It's, it's about having that, that level plateau. So sort of the change of the, I guess, the method of extraction is, uh, is being huge and really positive um, for the future, which I'm really excited about because, you know, there's still improvements to go, but in the next 10 years, it could be that there's even more fish for us to buy due to good management practices.
1: One of the exciting aspects of seafood is the diversity in supply. Whilst there are a core range of species many chefs gravitate towards, through the work of the likes of the boys at Finns, more and more underutilised species are becoming recognised as great eating and interesting. Through encouraging both fishers and chefs to give some of the lesser known species the love and care the premium species get, they're opening the market to many exciting culinary opportunities.
0: Since we started, there's been a lot of change in, in Western Australia, and, I mean, we've been a bit of a catalyst for, for some of that. So what, what we did was all these fishermen, they caught these fish that none of the buyers would buy off them, really, and we didn't know about it that much, and they were like, oh, yeah, what do you pay for these? And so what we did is rather than say, oh, no, we don't buy those, we created a market, and one of the best examples of that's amberjack or samsonfish, um, which is part of the kingfish family, and they're actually fantastic sashimi crudo fish so really good when they're raw they're fine when they're cooked as well but really top-notch when they're raw and we turned a a low value fish into into a bit of a high value fish there so the big things in in seafood for the food services i guess a lot of the what used to be considered undervalued species bycatch products etc is starting to utilize some of those like some of the weird and wonderful prawns that you get out of the deep sea trawl in Western Australia and uh, sort of expanding those bits and pieces and taking them from an obscurity and bringing them into something that's uh, more normal and accepted on any menu.
1: The dynamic nature of the seafood industry provides excitement like no other category in food. Perhaps it's the uncertainty of the catch, the risks that are taken to get to market or indeed the unique and special attributes of the protein itself. When seafood gets in your blood, seems to stay selling big parcels of
0: product it's like a drug it's just it's good fun when you make a big sale and you just Hoorah! i don't know there's something about it it's there's nothing quite like it the endorphins and and stuff when you do a big sale is is just exhilarating um i love buying fish off the jetty off a fisherman i don't know i love you know being on a jetty with fishermen and talking about boats and what they've caught etc going like last weekend i had to go on friday i had to go to a fisheries meeting for the southern seafood producers in augusta and i've got one of my mates cookies that lives there shark fisherman and so i ended up crashing in his caravan and on the night we went out crabbing in the in the sort of estuary there and just scoop netted crabs and cooked them up at 10 o'clock and munged on those and it's the friendships that i've made with with some of the coolest people that i know i guess fishermen i like it like I, I live for it
1: for many in the world of food corporate governance commercial imperatives and the rigors of compliance have driven the fun out of business it's exciting to see next generation operators like phil clark and his team at finn's embracing seafood with a love of the business a genuine passion for what they do and an approach which is all about collaboration, commitment and transparency. At the end of the day, the seafood we catch and grow in Australia is special. The attitude that the Finns team have, celebrating the work of the fishermen, their catch and the cooks who use it, is a motivation to us all, providing confidence that the industry really does have a bright future. This is Fish Tales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Seafood Podcast, or email us at fishtalespodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.